Green Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Greenleft is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Right, you are listening to Green Left Radio. Um, it is a fine 24 degree morning, I think. Um, I think it's supposed to be a slightly warmer than what it was yesterday, where the past two days have basically felt like winter. Yes. Um, but yeah, we have a pretty packed program on Green Left um, Radio this morning. Um, we're going to be um, covering hopefully the Irish elections, um, a recent trip um, to Europe from one of our um, from one um, one of the members of Socialist Alliance who went on a and a Kurdish solidarity activist who went on a trip to a conference in Germany, and I also managed to get. Oh, at the last minute, um, Megan's not aware of this, we do have another guest who's going to be talking about this campaign around the North West Link and sort of the impacts of, the particular impacts of on her local community. That's oh, a packed radio show then. Yeah. Um, so I guess just before we get into the program, I would like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the wandering land of the Kulin Nation. Um, like to pay our respect um, to elders past and present and that this always was, um, always will be Aboriginal land. Now, um, I guess what um, what has been kind of in the headline news, Megan, that you want to like to start off with? Uh, I don't, I don't know. I honestly have been so um, distracted, but I'd like to talk about the upcoming rally um, this Saturday. So tomorrow at 2pm, there is a massive rally at the Victorian State Library and it is uh, put on by the Climate Justice Alliance, which is an alliance of a bunch of different organisations from sort of uh, the whole spectrum of the political left. uh, And we've all come together basically because we're facing a climate crisis and we have to do something about it. And so this is a a a coordinated effort from a bunch of different organisations and it looks like it's going to be huge. And as we all know, um, you know, the climate crisis is not going away and unfortunately our government's not doing anything about it. Uh, In fact, they're doing less than nothing. They're still um, approving the Adani coal mine. They're still approving um, gas pipe projects and uh, they're also, both parties, still accepting millions and millions of dollars of uh, donation money uh, from fossil fuel industries. So there's not much change happening in the government or in our opposition, which is a not very effective opposition. So we, the people, have to force change in order to secure our futures and the futures of the planet. So I do encourage people to come along. Um, so this, so tomorrow, so Saturday, 2 p.m. at the Victorian State Library, uh, bring along your friends and family, bring along um, banners and come and listen to the speakers and march with us because it's really important right now uh, we don't have decades. We don't. Maybe we have a couple of years in order to enact change, and so we have to basically bring about change ourselves. Mm. Yeah. 
Now, one interesting, yeah, so I think, yeah, it'll be very important for people to come along to that rally, and it's also going to be part of um, of a National Day of Action, so there's going to be protests happening in Canberra, Sydney, um, Adelaide, and Brisbane, um, and you can actually find the details of all those protests on Green Left. Um, so, the next, um, the other kind of news story, and this is a bit more, um, a bit more of a, a dramatic kind of news story, but just something um, that I've noticed in the news in the past day has been um, the criticism that the Australian police have received in over the past day from a number of um, particular incidents. Um, the first incident being there was, um, and a bit of a trigger warning here, domestic violence murder. Um, basically, there was a uh, there was a recent murder uh, uh, of, um, of, a wo- of a woman and her three children by um, her husband or partner, whatever the leader of the story, and the police basically made um, the police officer in charge of this handling the particular case as it has happened, because this has been on the media pretty much everywhere in the past day, has been to sort of put some kind of equal weight um, between, you know, the factors that might have led to the murder as, you know, as being just, as mm. being some explanation, as being some explanation for the behaviour, not giving any sort of agency to the victim. Um, basically trying to say, oh, it could have been, you know, the man could have been under a lot of stress, etc. but which I just think is you know, a completely... I am under a lot of stress a lot of the times, but I don't kill my partner or my children. Um, I, I, I've been watching this one as well. And, um, so yeah, trigger warning, domestic violence and murder. This has, this is a continuous thing that's happening. Uh, and you know, it's, it's not just the police, it's our media as well. So this particular case that's in the media at the moment, um, talks about, um, I, I can't, and I'm not going to name the na- name names actually, about this, um, NRL, um, uh, players fall from grace and, um, you know, how he was a good husband and a good father and all of this sort of stuff. It completely gets rid of the voice of the women and the children, or the woman and the children who were murdered. Um, and I, I have to say, like, this is an extremely frustrating thing as a woman watching the dialogue from the media, which is absolutely despicable. It seems to me that that when we we uh, progress this uh, conversation about domestic violence and about you know murders perpetrated by domestic violence, uh, you know, uh, uh, by um, these these men. You know, against these women and children, it seems to me that every single time this uh, issue progresses excruciatingly slowly forward, it takes the death of a woman or a child to progress it forward. Each time we have this genuine dialogue, it is because a woman or a child has been murdered. It takes a murder to progress this conversation forward, and I really want to have that hit home to people. We should be having this conversation no matter what, but it only seems to be over the death of victims that we progress this conversation forward. And I feel like we've gone backward as well, because looking at the media coverage of this particular case, it is mind-boggling. I mean, they're paying tribute to this guy, basically. It is unbelievable. And I, I, like, I feel like the, the, the woman who was involved and her three children who were burned to death, uh, almost just only get a look in. You know, it's all about him. And it, I just, 
I am so frustrated at this, and I can understand that the you know the victims of domestic violence and and the the friends and the family of people who have have been victims of domestic violence are absolutely frustrated at this issue, and we should absolutely um, criticise the police and also the media in their coverage of this particular case and in cases in previously as well. Um, so yeah, this is a bit of a bugbear of mine, but um, I can't imagine what people who have gone through domestic violence or have had friends and family who have been victims of domestic violence are going through when they see the coverage um, on the media about this, and then when they hear police talk about it, um, we've got it. We're completely um, backwards, basically. Yeah. Right. I, I do like to say something about this as well. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, yeah, sorry, sorry. Why don't you introduce yourself? No, my, my, my name's Annie and I've just come in to do another program and I was actually watching the TV when that came on and it took till about the fourth time and it was on the ABC that the context, it, that it was told in the context of domestic violence. Yeah, and that's it on took the ABC. That long. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine, you know, what other media outlets have been saying? I, I, I'm absolutely flabbergasted at this. I just can't believe that we are in 2020 framing this as this is the most appalling event. Grace, you know, I, I, I can't understand how we can be doing this, and I can't understand. Like, do they understand the trauma that they're causing? No, I think it exposes the patriarchal arrangements quite clearly. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, and this is doing damage. So that media coverage and the way that the police are speaking about the case is doing damage in the community. It's not just doing damage to domestic violence victims and their friends and families. It's doing damage to the entire way we see domestic violence. And who is at fault here? Oh, fancy have, yeah. oh, can you imagine having that happen again? Mm. I mean, absolutely. my God. Yeah. yeah. What, we're not going to deal with this? No. It's, it literally will take the death of more women and children to progress this conversation ever, ever closer to what we need to have happen. And it literally is death by death. And this is disgusting. Yeah, I know. Anyway, thank, thank you. I, no, I just, I've been carrying this for a couple of days now. I know. I completely understand. Thanks for coming in. <laughs> and yeah. I think it, another thing that the story kind of reflects is, um, well, especially the police kind of response is um, the police are actually, as an institution, um, tend to be completely useless at actually dealing with um, issues of domestic violence and sexism. And, in fact, the only yeah. solution they can yeah. seem to be putting forward is we just need um, more police officers, which in most respects just means you have more police officers to record that a murder had had, had taken place. They're not yeah. actually putting in... They're not actually a preventative merger to preventing these um, things from having to move. And actually the only yeah. ways um, that we can is actually through fighting for a society that actually addresses the systematic sexism at the core. Absolutely. Fighting for cultural change and fighting for the way that we portray these um, these issues as well. Yeah, it's quite disturbing. And, and look, if you are um, a victim of domestic violence, um, I, I definitely urge you to seek some help um, and and try and get out of that situation. And if this has caused any, um, you know, any trauma that, you, you know, you or your loved ones have been victims of domestic violence, I also urge you to speak to someone as well, because it is a very upsetting topic, um, as you can see. And um, obviously we want to change um, the very landscape that we, we see these issues uh, spoken about and we want to change um, the issues themselves so that they're no longer issues. 
Alright, I might just play a quick few announcements and then we'll move on to our first interview. RCR broadcasters present over a hundred radio programs every week, including a diverse range of community language shows. Come to more RCR Community Radio. Please subscribe now. تستمعون إلى إذاعة RCR Community Radio الرجاء الاشتراك الآن. نينغل لونغلين سموها بانولي تريسياري كرت كوندير كوندير كال. Están escuchando Radio Comunitaria 3CR. Suscríbete ahora. Metsuketsek Radio Igaranin for a time guda melbumi hai kaotin. Hima artsanakrovetsek ifer tricyari antam. Support the station that gives your community a voice. Subscribe to 3CR. Alright, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio. Um, it is 7.15am. Um, and on the line um, we have um, Durian Fentel. Um, he might be able to give a bit more of an introduction of himself, but he is an activist with Sinn Féin um, who's currently based, I think, in Denmark at the moment. Um, and so we have him on the line um, to talk about um, the recent results of the Irish elections, which actually still appears to be a kind of story that keeps developing kind of every day. So we'll kind of get the current up-to-date news from him. Um, so, yeah, good morning, Durian. Yeah, good morning. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you perfectly. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, Durian... Perfect. Um, okay, why don't you guess a start, maybe just for a bit of background, I guess, what, what is sort of the significant, can you tell us a bit about the significance of the kind of breakthrough of Sinn Féin in the, the recent sort of Irish elections? Well, I mean, this, this is, the word revolution of the ballot box has been thrown around in similar terms. Um, the, the, the background to the Irish political system, I guess, is probably the, the most relevant thing here. Uh, Irish politics has been dominated in the South. Uh, for a hundred years since, uh, or nearly, nearly a hundred years, by two parties, um, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, who were the opposing sides of the Civil War. And they've had a little cosy cartel between them of, of sharing government. This is the first time that a party sort of outside of the establishment has, um, has really broken through. In the past, Labour has gone quite strong, but they've gone into coalition with um, one or other of these parties. Sinn Féin is, on the other hand, seen as very much um, a threat to this establishment and, uh, and in fact, is a, is a threat because of the, the policies we put forward and the, the plans we have for uniting the country and bringing about some real social change. And what is the sort of, um, I guess, the political kind of program that kind of Sinn Féin kind of ran on this election? And I guess... What is sort of, actually, we'll lead into that next question after actually by talking about what is sort of the, the pl- program that the Sinn Féin ran on? Well, I mean, you'd probably describe it as a fairly social democratic looking thing. Um, and that's, I, I think you have to take into account the situation in, well, across most of the EU where neoliberalism is, is, is fairly dominant. Um, Ireland 10 years ago was, uh, suffered from the economic, um, and a financial crash, and austerity has been in play for all that time between these two major parties um, imposing that on people. So in terms of turning that around, you know, calling for a full-scale social revolution isn't really on the cards, but what, what the program actually can, contains meets the immediate needs of, of people um, 
or especially working people in Ireland. So there's a, there's a call for 100,000 new affordable social and public houses to be built. Um, tax cuts for people earning up to 30,000 or for the first 30,000 um, earned. Um, a a, a three-year rent freeze because one of the biggest issues, especially in in Dublin, but also in other other areas of Ireland in the south, as well, is the, the question of rent costs. And I mean, 50% of 18 to 30-year-olds um, in, in the Republic of Ireland are living at home with their parents because they simply can't afford to move out by themselves. The rental stress is unbelievable. There are over 10,000 homeless people. Um, the numbers are updated every week, but it's 10,000 consistently. Four of them have died um, in the past eight days from the cold and from exposure and the rest of it. Um, so, I mean, the situation is is, is dire for, for a lot of people. The, there's also a question of the pension age, uh, which the government wanted to increase to 67. So we're calling, calling for bringing it back to 65. Uh, and then investment in health. So the, the two biggest issues for the the electorate, according to the, the exit polls, were housing and health. And on each of these, uh, Sinn Féin had progressive uh, needs-based policies, and the two major parties were discontinuing the status quo mm. and congratulating themselves for doing so. Mm. Yeah, I guess what, what that, the question that raises is, I guess, in terms of um, one of the things that um, Sinn Féin um, has been known for has been that it's been always been a consistent advocate um, for a united Ireland. And I kind of wanted to hear what is sort of, following this kind of election result, what is sort of the prospects in terms of like a united Ireland? What has Sinn Féin kind of planned to do? Because clearly it gets a lot of um, a lot of its space, of its support, a lot of its members are part of this sort of, of the Irish sort of Republican movement. And so what is sort of the, how... What is the situation um, currently as of this kind of recent electoral result? Well, it's interesting because, I mean, although for us, our, um, our, it's almost the reason for existence uh, you know, to, to unite Ireland, to get the, the Brits out of the north and bring about a 32-county democratic socialist republic, um, in the exit polls, it, uh, only 1% considered Brexit to be an issue. And we didn't campaign too heavily on the issue of United Ireland because everyone knows that that's our position anyway. And we focus more on the, the social issues. But Brexit has really brought the issue to the, to the fore because the north of, of Ireland um, in the Brexit referendum voted to remain in the EU um, for just, well, despite its limitations and uh, being dragged out against their will. And we're now seeing poll after poll in both the north and now the south showing that a majority of people would be willing to vote in favour of uh, United, United Ireland in a referendum. And we, we think that there needs to be a, a, a vote on this within five years. But before this, there needs to be uh, a planning for this, a discussion which involves all parts of the community, north and south, the loyalists as well as the Republicans, in order to, to build a new Ireland which isn't based upon the same old golden circles and elites, but in, includes all the different backgrounds in, in, into one United Re- Republic. Is it that a referendum, um, you know, would would come about in the next couple of years? And how do you think that, say, England will will handle that? You're, you're very very faint there. So I I, I think I heard you. you know, how how likely that it will um, come about? Yeah, say say the ask I'm, question. I'm again. so sorry. We had a bit of a technical issue here. So how um so with the referendum, how likely do you think it might be to to actually happen in the next couple of years? And how do you think that um, Britain will handle that? Well, this, this is, I guess, the, the 
biggest um, the biggest opportunity that the Good Friday Agreement of 1998, which is sort of the peace deal in the North, provided us was it, was the the right to have a referendum, but also one of the biggest limitations in that the power to call that referendum still lies with the British government. Um, so while we you know the support is increasing for this. Um, and we, and we would probably win it if um, if there was a, a properly held referendum in a couple of years and we discussed the pros and cons. The British government ultimately has the, the final say here. So if, if the Irish government were to go to them and, and also to go to the EU and, and get Europe to apply pressure to the Brits, then the, the, the chances are much higher. And I mean, I've been working for the past four and a half years in the European Parliament on the Brexit issue amongst others, but largely on Brexit. And one of the biggest issues... That, um, that Brexit faces the English, basically, who, uh, which are the votes were for Brexit, not the Scots or, or the mm. Irish or even the Welsh, to be fair. Um, the biggest challenge that it, they face in actually making this thing work is the fact that there is a border, a land border, um, across the middle of Ireland and the, the Britain lays claim to the north. That means that um, any, if they leave the single market, if they leave the customs union with the EU, there, ha there have to be checks and controls. And the big battle for the past three years has been, are those checks and controls going to be in the Irish Sea, where they belong, or are they going to be across the island of Ireland, which could also you know, provoke hotheads to, to, to you know, restart the violence or, or you know, step down that path. So really it is in the interests of the Brexiteers across Britain and also in the interest of the EU at large to resolve... The, the, the British border in Ireland question. Uh, what's missing at the moment still is political will and um, and sort of an opportunity to to bring this about. So what what we're trying to do in, at the European level is to get keep this on the table, keep this at the centre of any Brexit discussions, because while Brexit has officially happened, so to speak, the future relationship is still to be negotiated, and we want to make sure that the question of the of the border in Ireland is at the heart of this discussion going forward. Hmm. Um, I guess um, another question I'd like um, have and is basically in terms of this kind of electoral kind of result, um, there's clearly a, a very kind of strong showing um, for the left. Um, but I kind of wanted to know what is sort of um, what have been some of the campaigns and sort of struggles that have sort of under um, pine, um, underpinned sort of Irish politics in terms of the past few years, and would they, in a sense, some of these um, social struggles be reflected um, by the electoral result? Yes and no. I mean, the, the, uh, I think what's certainly um, on on show here is that there is a will for change. That people are fed up. Because 10 years ago, um, when the, the crash happened, Ireland ended up pay, paying, the Republic ended up paying 42 billion euros in banking debt, uh, plus an entire pension scheme of another 18 billion. Um, the, the economy was, was wrecked and ruined. 10% of the population migrated. There's a literal decimation of the population, mostly young people, who are, a lot of whom are not coming back. And then it, through the austerity measures that were brought in, there were attempts to privatise the water, there were um, and, you know, a series of other sort of right-wing austerity attempts. And the water campaign in particular brought about a massive, massive resistance. Hundreds of thousands of people on the streets regularly, month after month, and we won that battle. And there's been you know, other things that have come here and there, but I mean, it's, it's probably the best example. 
And over this time, people have just gotten sick of it. They've gotten fed up, and they're looking for something new and 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 different. And quite frankly, if if, you know, if we can't form a government now, we we may end up going to another election. If we do form a government now, we have to deliver because there's there's a, a section of the population who are living on the edge, and they don't have time for playing um, political party games either. It's it's a really dire situation. Like there are, there are 230,000 children in the Republic of Ireland living in poverty. That's one in five children. I mean, this, the, the, these struggles that have popped up from time to time over the past decade, they reflect what's going on underneath. There, there is an economic recovery that's taking place on, on the figures. The GDP is up, the profits are up, and that's not trickling down to anybody. Yeah. Um, it sounds like the situation is pretty dire. I've got a couple of questions. So firstly, on the actual um, point of forming a government, if you could actually um, give us an idea of how likely that is and what the, the kind of um, political machinations you will need to do in order to actually achieve that. And also, with um, the election of Sinn Féin, what does that mean to the average Irish person? How will their life change? Um, and, and, you know, how will it change for the better if it's going to change for the better? Right. Well, the, the the complicated um and slightly nonsensical system that we have to deal with here is is probably the, it would take a little of explaining, but I won't. I'll try and summarise it. Um, effectively, we've got three, now three major parties all sitting at more or less the same number of of seats. Um, there's 180 seats in the door, which is the, the the parliament, and you need you know half of them to to form government or something approaching it from a minority government. We have the most um, equally with Fianna Fáil, who are sort of a centre-right party, with 37. They, have, they technically have 38, but one of them is the Speaker of the... the, the, the King Corolla, the Speaker of the Parliament, so 37 apiece. And then Fine, Fine Gael, um is the, the Conservatives. They've, uh, you know, I think, 35, um, so a couple less. And then you've got the Greens on 12, Labour on 6, Social Democrats 6, uh, a dozen and more independents, and then the, the the five solidarity people before profits of the the far left. No real formula of that for a, 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 our preferred option, which is a, a left alliance excluding Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael. Nothing seems obvious of that. But if one of the major parties abstained, gave us a confidence and supply kind of situation, we could form a minority government with Sinn Féin and the broadly speaking left and the Greens. Um, but both major parties are incredibly um, uh, hostile towards Sinn Féin. So, you know, that, that's unlikely to take place. But also they're hostile towards each other. I mean, these are two parties who 100 years ago fought a civil war and the only reason they exist is to oppose one another. So there, there is talk about a grand coalition sort of option with between them and maybe the Greens to make up the numbers. Again, not likely, but possible. And this can go on for a while. In 2016, the, the negotiations took 76 days before a, a government was formed. And even then, it was a, a minority government with a tolerance, confidence and supply kind of situation. So we could end up waiting for a couple of months for a solution here. I don't think it will take that long. But I, I think the, the, the real challenge now is finding uh, a formula that, that works numerically and then works politically. And the only two options that really stand out are um, this grand coalition of the right or a minority left government. There's a third option, which is Sinn Féin, Fianna Fáil. Um, and we've always said we're open to, to discussing 
uh, with every, and talking with everyone about forming government, and we remain that way. But it would have to be on a Republican program, a left Republican program of, of real social change and investment and, and rights. And they have repeatedly said that they're not willing to, to engage with us on that. But we'll keep talk, trying and talking, but it's unlikely, which means then an election is probably on the cards. And even if we did have a minority government, we'd probably have an election within a year or so afterwards anyway. Um, and that's interesting because... The polls are now showing that if there were a fresh election, uh, we would get 35% of the vote, um, which is as much as both the other major parties combined. Um, but only 17% of the electorate want new elections. People want a government that will actually you know, bring about change and actually get to work on fixing housing, on fixing um, the health system, on fixing schools and education and you know, and, and the environment and bringing the pension age back down and those kind of things. So that's that's our priority right now is trying to form that government. And if we can't, then we go to the polls again and maybe go better. Um, how would how would it change? I mean, I think that's it, it. It depends first of all if we have to go into a coalition government with someone to our right, um, because then you have to make compromises. We prefer not to do that. Um, our manifesto, as I've already said, contains some, you know, socially progressive uh, calls and policies. We're discussing with uh, people in the relevant government departments to set out a program for government, which would spell out what exact policies uh, these would constitute to make them happen. But a three-year rent freeze, a tax rebate on rents as well, because the rents are already too high, Re restoring the pension age, um, investing in probably universal health care and coverage, and thousands of new nurses um, are cutting the waiting lists. Um, there's one of the austerity taxes from from the, the past 10 years, it's called the USC, the Universal Services Charge. Um, it's become a central part of the taxation system now, but our first step to you know, removing it as a burden is to remove it from the first 30,000 euros earned. So for people on low income, that's, mo that's most or all of their income. So they will not have to pay this excessive austerity tax and effectively pushing it towards being a rich tax or a middle middle and upper class um, tax. But the, the centerpiece, I guess, which has really given us the, the boost is the, the, the call for new new housing and new homes. Um, that's 100,000 in, in five years. And that's a combination of affordable housing and the private market, social and public homes and a full mix, you know, rent to buy, all the rest of it, and just giving people the options depending upon what their needs are and what, where they live and, and what, where they, how they'd like to live. Because at the moment, nothing in the recovery will mean anything. No policy will mean anything until we solve the, the housing and the homelessness crisis. Absolutely. And I mean, it sounds like you've got your work cut out for you. Um, I, I know that it's early days, but um, how is the negotiation um, between, say, the Greens and the, um, the Solidarity People Before Profit, uh, you know, seats? Is there, is there much promise there? Do you think that there might be that left minority government? And I mean, I'm guessing in this situation, in the situation that you face, that would probably be, be the most ideal uh, situation in order to put forward these progressive, um, you know, policies. How how do you think it's going at the moment? If you can give us a current analysis. Well, I mean, the, actually, just uh, half an hour ago or an hour ago, um, there's just the the doll met for the first time since the election, and they elected re-elected the the speaker, 
and then had held the first votes on forming, on electing a possible Taoiseach, which is like the prime minister to the leader of government. And uh, Fine Gael put up the, the existing Taoiseach. He, he lost with only 36 out of 180 votes. The leader of um, Fianna Fáil got um, 41. Mary Lou MacDonald, who's the leader of Sinn Féin, received 45. Um, and the Greens put up their leader. He only got 12. Um, and so we, we, obviously we have the, the most support in this. And five of those votes were from Solidarity People Before Profit. So they, they, they announced before the, the, the event, before the, the meeting of the parliament was convened tonight, that they would support us in trying to form this left this left coalition. Um, and we will continue to try to try to work with them. And it was a, it was a little awkward to begin with because at first they would only negotiate separately. So they are, you know, I don't know if your listeners are aware, but they're an alliance between originally Solidarity and People Before Profit. So Solidarity is like the Socialist Party. People Before Profit is um, sort of the IST, sort of SWP, um, Solidarity types. Um, uh, in Australia, that is. Yeah. And, but now that they, they had a split recently, so there's a third group called RISE, which is more eco-socialist. And they were negotiating separately, <laughs> which made things a little more cumbersome. But they're now being more coordinated in their their approach. Look, we, we get on fine with them. We agree on, on most of the key policy issues. Where we have some a bit of friction is that they want, us, they want Sinn Féin to reject the possibility of going into government with Fianna Fáil. Um, and to only call for a minority um, left government, and that's, that's you know it's a good call to make um, in the abstract. But when you're on the verge of forming government and potentially with a a, a left wing uh, you know social program for government to address these kind of major issues, you can't be that exclusive or be rather be seen to be that exclusive. Because if there is another election, um, the last thing we want to be doing is with the support for a new election of only 17%, to be seen to be responsible for that. We want to work with anyone who will sign up to these key principles, which will turn around the austerity of the past 10 years. Fianna Fáil won't do that, but we, ha- we have to expose them for that and keep talking to them because there is division in Fianna Fáil, probably three ways, I would say, on this issue. One lot, one part of them would prefer to go in with their arch-nemesis of Fianna Gael, the civil war enemies, over us any time of the week. Another part um, would would like to go into coalition with, with Sinn Féin in order to suffocate us. So you know that's a you know in, in in politics and war the only reason you hug someone is to measure them up for the graves. The old sayings. So they want to actually just you know try basically try and undermine us from from nearby and stab us in the back. That's one section. And then a third section is so opportunist they'll go into government with anyone. Um, and what we need to do is. If we can form government on our, on our terms, form government, because these issues are too important to be left alone. But it has to be on our terms. Hmm. But we, we can't ex- exclude them out of hand um, just because we know that most of them aren't going to be open to that. And so that's where the biggest friction has, I guess, come. But look, we, you know, we're on the same side and we're going to keep working with them and, and negotiating with them over the, the coming, I hope not, not more than weeks, but we'll see. Hmm. Alright, we're gonna be finishing up this interview now. Um, do you kind of have any final comments you'd like to make? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is a complicated situation and it's one that won't go away for a while, not least because the Brexit 
situation <laughs> um, is sort of over, overhanging all of it as well. And I mean, when domestic elections like this, it's usually social issues. And the social issues, I mean, Ireland is one of the, the pigs countries, you know, Portugal, Ireland, Italy, Greece, Spain, who suffered the worst from the austerity, but still not recovered. Add to that the economic impact that Brexit will have and the social impact that Brexit will have. Um, there does need to be a, a solution to this, and the solution to this will, does need to be um, a, re- a referendum north and south of the border on Irish unity, but not just for the sake of, of uniting Ireland, but for, for creating a new kind of Ireland with a new system, a you know, new social system, new political system, and a new way of, of running things because the, the old elites, the old golden circles and golden, golden handshakes and all, all these people at the, at the top and their friends in the media who every time we get popular start talking about the IRA and bombs and whatever else and say nothing about someone freezing in the park without a home. They've been running not only this island into, into the ground, but the rest of Europe and, and, and well beyond. And that's probably the, the biggest shake-up that we could maybe see out of this is if Sinn Féin gets government in, in Ireland. If other things, like what's happening in Spain at the moment, which could be interesting, um, and elsewhere, if, if, the, if the left across Europe and beyond can get organised and begin to actually take a little bit of power and turn things around, we could see some of the foundations of the current system begin to wobble. Not, not shatter or shake or fall, but wobble. Um, and the stakes are pretty high at the moment because I've spelled out the dire situation of people in Ireland. So we, we need this for, for, you know, for the people of Ireland, for the long-standing issue of a democratic right to unite the country and free them from 800 years of, of, uh, of colonialism and occupation, but also the, the social challenge that we all face. We have an opening here to expose the contradictions and to, and, and to take advantage of that for the benefit of ordinary people, and we're going to take it. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. And um, it sounds like you've got your work cut out for you, but we are very hopeful that you can affect some change and we congratulate you um, on the, the, the victory, basically, that you've had. Um, and we look forward to hearing about what happens and, um, and watching, hopefully, uh, we can see the, you know, the average Irish person actually um, you know, lifted out of the lot that they've been faced with for so many centuries. Thank you very much for your time. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. All right, that was Durian um, Fintel um, from a Sinn Féin activist currently based in Denmark at the moment. Um, so, yes, um, it is 7.40 a.m., um, and we're actually getting to five minutes into our next interview, so I just might play a quick announcement, and then we might do a quick news story and then move on to our second interview. What a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 200 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminawaya Mawbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. 
Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 Welcome back. You are listening to Green Left Radio, 8.55 on your AM dial. Uh, so 3CR, uh, we are an independent uh, media station. We basically are the voice of the people and the community. Uh, if you haven't subscribed already, please do consider subscribing to 3CR. It's a really important uh, media project that's been going on um, for many, many decades. Um, so you can actually subscribe if you go to uh, 3cr.org.au. Uh, so the su- subscription for um, a pension or concession rate is $35. It's $75 for waged and if you're an organisation or a band or you, you know, you've got a bit of cash and you'd like to um, swing some solidarity our way, you can pay $150 for the year and basically uh, all of those costs go to the running of the station. Um, it's a really, really important media endeavour. In the landscape that we currently have, uh, corporations basically uh, hold sway in the media that we consume. Um, Obviously, corporations don't have our best interests in mind and they don't have the voices of the marginalised and oppressed. And that's a very important part of what 3CR is all about because it's not just community members. It's also other members who aren't usually represented in media. So the voices of the homeless, um, the marginalised, ethnic minorities, First Nations people, uh, all of these voices are in the mix of 3CR and it makes a, for a more rich and diverse uh, culture and media landscape. So please do consider uh, subscribing to 3CR. It's an important part of how we survive. Uh, so Green Left Radio definitely supports you subscribing. I'm subscribed. Jacob's subscribed. Um, we think it's a fantastic idea. So, yeah, uh, 3cr.org.au. We are going to go to our uh, next interview very soon, um, but I just wanted to wish everyone a fantastic weekend and also just to do a little bit of a plug for the massive rally that's happening um, Saturday, 2pm, so tomorrow, 2pm, at the Victorian State Library. So it's part of the Climate Justice Alliance Melbourne um, organisation. Uh, we are coming together, a whole diverse bunch of organisations, because we realise that the climate crisis we've reached such a dire situation we have to get together and we have to force significant change on both corporations and governments uh, in order to save our planet to to save us basically yeah so on the line we have socialist alliance member peter boyle and he's going to be doing an interview he's recently um come back from germany i believe is that correct um jacob Oh, he, Brussels. Oh, Brussels, yeah. okay, so, sorry um, about that. <laughs> we have um, Peter Boyle, who's actually, also, um, in addition to being a member of Social Alliance, has also been a long-time um, Kurdish solidarity activist, um, and it was um, in that capacity that he was invited to a conference, um, an international conference titled The European Union, Turkey, the Middle East and the Kurds, and which was also held, um, which was held in the European Parliament in Brussels. So, yeah, good morning, Peter. Yeah, good morning. Yeah, so what can you tell us a bit about your trip, especially this conference um, that you were kind of invited to? And I guess, I mean, I guess what it sort of, reflect in terms of the kind of greater um, movement for solidarity with um, with the Kurdish community? 
I suppose the overall impact is that between the conference and uh, the the long march uh, to for the freedom of uh, Kurdish leader Abdullah Öcalan, which I participated in after the conference, the two things together demonstrated very clearly to me the the really broad support that has developed, particularly in Europe, uh, for the Rojava revolution and for the Kurdish struggle more generally. And also for the kind of ideas, the kind of like, if you like, new feminist, uh, democratic confederalist thinking that, uh, the, uh, that, that this revolution is, is putting forward. So the conference, which was at the European Parliament, was, was co-sponsored by pretty much all the green and left and even some of the social democratic parties, uh, that are present in the, in the European Parliament. And they participated in a big way. It's a 16 conference and of, of that character held in Parliament. And, uh, and they've had one every year, um, for the last 16 years. But in recent years, more and more of the left and green parties have, have come behind it. So it, it indicated a very strong, uh, solidarity, um, at, at that level, at the parliamentary politics level. But the long march, which was actually three, three long marches that, that converged in the town of the city of Strasbourg in France, which is the home of another European institution, the European Council, which actually predates the European Union. And actually it was formed after the Second World War and it, it, it includes Turkey, unlike the European Union where Turkey is still a candidate, uh, for membership. Now that march, uh, primarily united the Kurdish community from Europe with a bunch of internationalists uh, who were in a contingent that I was part of, and 120 uh, international supporters uh, from from all around the world, but primarily from Europe, and I would say of the Europeans in that march, the great majority were from Catalonia or other parts of the Spanish state. And they were overwhelmingly young, libertarian, socialist, libertarian left uh, activists, very, very young activists. And it's, that's, that's another profound effect, apart from the sort of, if you like, more um, kind of mainstream political support. This has clearly affected a generation of radical revolutionary activists, uh, youth activists in, in Europe. Many of them actually have spent time working in some capacity or some even fighting in Rojava and they've come back and they've influenced their peers in the most profound way. Um, I must say it was, it was the first for me to spend five days basically marching, uh, with this, 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 um, you know, uh, uh, an amazing group of, of anarchist and libertarian socialist, uh, activists. You know, for five days, they're going to be camping with them. And the thing which just struck me is that, you know, it's nothing like a real revolution to reset uh, people's ideas. I mean, I've never seen people, you know, uh, um, of, of, of that political background in, in our Australian context who were so disciplined, organized, and, um, yeah, serious and committed uh, into in a struggle. Well, if you like, you could say they, they, they've become party activists. The Kurdish party, of course, being the party that, 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 that they, uh, um, that, that their primary party affiliation now is to, 
which is the Kurdistan Workers' Party, which is, is still listed, banned in, 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 in the European Union, though it has been exonerated by a court recently in Belgium. And I guess um, what what um, what else sort of um, what was sort of developments I guess in terms of, of in terms of that in terms of because um, I know there was a, a recent article in Green Left about this about the status of the PKK as a terrorist organisation. Yeah, well, um, we, we got to know quite a bit about uh, this court case, the Belgian court case at the at the conference uh, in the European Parliament because it was addressed by the the lawyer that led the case, and he said, so now there's a clear contradiction. Uh, On one hand, the Belgium highest court in Belgium has declared that the PKK is not a terrorist organization, that it is a non-state political actor in the conflict in, in and around Turkey. On the other hand, straight after the court made that decision, the Belgian government announced that it was bound by the European Union's listing of the PKK as a terrorist organization. So you have the highest point of the judiciary making a very clear and and, uh, articulated case for why the PKK should not be on the terrorist list. On the other hand, the government saying, well, we're bound by the EU, Um, which I, I think is a reminder of the sort of of the negative, the negative uh, effect that the EU has uh, on a lot of politics and economics in, 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 in Europe. Um, and it was explained to us that at the heart of this is a really ugly, dirty deal that is in place in Europe, and particularly with the European Union and particularly with the German government and Turkey. And basically, they are the Europe... European Union and Germany in particular driving it is prepared to ignore all the human rights abuses, all the atrocities committed by the Turkish state in return for Turkey doing its best to prevent more refugees coming from the Middle East to 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 Europe. So it's to feed the sort of anti-refugee, racist, xenophobic um, sentiment in Europe they are prepared not only to allow, you know, the continuing atrocities that Turkey commits against the Kurdish people and other people in the region, but even its support uh, for uh, IS fighters that have rehabilitated and turned into militias in support of Turkey's uh, objectives in the Middle East. And on top of that, they pay them billions and billions in euros supposedly to help them look after refugees. So the guts of it is a sort of imperialist, racist deal uh, that, that, that Europe um, has in place with Turkey. And what, in terms of, um, this is all pretty interesting, what is sort of the, um, what is the kind of left within Europe, especially those, um, especially for the left parties that have been um, elected within the European Parliament, are sort of what is sort of the um, what is the type of kind of campaigning and what are they being kind of putting forward in, as a sort of counter um, to this kind of clear um, alliance? Well, they've they've, um, they've put forward you know all, all the right things, I'd say. Uh, they've called for 
for this dirty deal to be undone. Uh, they've called for solidarity for Rajiva, and I think um, um, you know there were there were numerous calls from MEPs from all these different left and green parties uh, to that effect. Um, they have called for the release of Abdullah Ojalan um, and uh, support for the for continuing of the peace talks between the Kurds and the Turkish government. So they've done all these right things, but of course they 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 don't really control the parliament in Europe, you know, nor do any of these less really control the parliament or the government in in any of the European countries. Um, so yeah, it's it, at this stage, of course, it's it's solidarity of that nature. Now, uh, quite a few of these left MPs um, have visited Rajava, uh, which provides a certain kind of diplomatic and, and moral support, and but they've also taken you know suitcases full of medical equipment. And I spoke to Soren Sundergaard, who's not an MEP, not a European parliamentarian, but uh, an MP in, in Denmark for the Red-Green Alliance, and he had just been on a visit in December and took uh, two, two suitcases full uh, uh, in, 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 into Rajava, so and he was able to, you know, his, explain his impressions of of what's going on there. In addition to that, many of the progressive MPs are participating in regular visits to Turkey. Either, you know, there's an upcoming uh, con- conference of the HDP, a People's Democratic Party, in Turkey, which is, you know, the, 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 a, a significant large. Actually, I think it's the it's the main, maybe the biggest opposition party in Turkey, or second biggest. And um, they will be having a congress uh, in in over, over this weekend, and uh, many of them will go as, as delegations that will help in that way. Uh, another group of progressive MPs just came back. Every year they go across as a delegation called the Imrali delegation. And they go to Turkey, they formally approach the Turkish government saying, we would like to meet Abdullah Öcalan, and the Turkish government ignores them. But they just do it year after year after year. And I met one uh, former British MEP, because British is Brexited, um, by the name of Julie um, Julie Dawes, I think. Uh, and she said, um, yep, same thing happened this year. She just came back, went over to, to, to Turkey. They approached the Turkish government, Turkish government ignored them. Came back, um, so that they do that sort of thing. So there's 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 there's, there's uh, an immense solidarity effect there. Now, one of the things that I guess I did not have a clear impression of is the scale of organisation of the uh, Kurdish diaspora, particularly in Europe. It is absolutely phenomenal. Um, as one person said, well. Uh, in, in a bus to, to when we were having a discussion, he says, "Well, you know, a revolution can't live without cater." And my goodness, have they got a cater operation? It sustains not only all this diplomatic work, both at the parliamentary level, but also at the level of working with grassroots anti-capitalist youth. Uh, at the same time, they sustain uh, five TV channels with satellite licenses. A huge studio running 24 hours, seven days a week. They produce daily newspaper called Politica and distribute it in Europe, um, as well as obviously, you know, help.
helping and participating in the actual struggle that's going on back in Rojava and in in uh, Turkey and in um, in uh, the, the Kurdistan bits of Kurdistan that are in Iraq and Iran. So it's 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 a massive massive uh, movement, and since so many Kurds have been driven abroad, um, you know um, you can you can really feel it. I think in Europe you can see it. Hmm. All right, so we'll just go, I guess we'll finish up um, now. We're running a, a bit on uh, time, Peter. Um, do you have any kind of like final comments to kind of sum up um, kind of things? Well, it, it made me feel like um, Australia ought to catch up, you know, and particularly the Australian radical left needs to step up to it. You know, I, I, I actually, uh, one of my objectives is to actually to try and see if it's possible that if there's going to be another march next year that we get some some young activists, some young left-wing radical activists from Australia to go along because, you know, this should be a much bigger thing here. I mean, as explained to me by some of these um, of these Catalan uh, uh, revolutionaries, youth, they say, well, you know, we, we are so depressed about politics in general. We see fascism on the rise in Europe. We see so many of our traditional parties of the left betraying us when they come into government. But here we see a revolution which has the same radical values, same feminist, same ecological and, and, and grassroots democracy values that we have. And that's why we are out here marching and that's why we've got organized uh, in support of this revolution. And finally, just want to say that our contingent of 120 internationalists uh, painted a banner to carry on the march and it said, we are your mountains, which is a reference, of course, to the sort of rather grim Kurdish uh, saying, our only friends are the mountains. Hi. Thank, um, thanks, um, thanks for that, um, Peter. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. Thank you, Peter. All right, um, that was um, Peter Boyle, um, a Kurdish solidarity activist and member of Social Alliance who had just had the pleasure of going uh, to a solidarity trip um, to Brussels, um, um, supporting um, the, the um, networking with the, the Kurdish community over there and, you know, the, um, the kind of active campaign that has been um, done in terms of um, defence of the, the Rojava revolution. All right, um, I'll just play a quick announcement and then from 8am, well, it's 8am now, but from this time we'll be going through the activist calendar before moving on to our third and final interview. Three CR, always bringing you the latest union news. They're coming after us at the moment. They want to get rid of penalty rates, the big push from businesses. They want to get rid of all the things that you and I have fought for. So there's tens of thousands of jobs gone, contracted out, to sham contracting arrangements. On 8.55am and on the web, 3cr.org.au. Alright, you're listening to Green Left Radio and it is time for the activist calendar. 
So every Friday until March 6th, there is going to be a weekly protest, Tell the Truth News Corp, organised by Extinction Rebellion, um, and that is at 1pm um, at the HWT building, 40 City Road in South Bank. So that's happening every Friday until March the 6th. Um, so I'm just getting to the actual events, and... Tonight, um, on tonight, today, on Friday, February the 21st, there'll be a rally to free Julian Assange, no, um, no US extradition, and they'll be happening at 6.30pm at the State Library in the, in the city. On Saturday, there'll be the Climate Crisis National Day of Action, um, happening at 2pm at the State Library. Um, there'll be a film screening, When the River Runs Dry, an Australian-made um, exploration of the rules governing the Murray-Darling Basin and how they're destroying the environment, causing extinction-level events and displacing communities with water rights and security becoming increasingly vital issues for communities. When the river runs dry, offers hope for a better water future, and they'll be happening at 2pm at the Cinema Nova on the 21st of um, February, 22nd of February. Um, there'll be a rally... No to family separation, stop the deportations. Under the harsh Migration Act, long-time residents are being deported if they have a criminal conviction, lives are being destroyed and families ripped apart, and they'll be happening at 6.30pm at the State Library, 328 Swanson Street in the city. Um, on Monday, the 24th of February, there'll be a public meeting, um, education under occupation, um, and there'll be fit the speaker will be Brother Peter Umbray, who is the Vice Chancellor of the Bethlehem University in Palestine, and that'll be happening at 6:30 p.m. at the Wesley Church um, at, on the 24th of February. And then, um, and then there'll be a film screening, Disaster Capitalism, um, a documentary by Anthony Lewinstein, Lewinstein and Four Noroto, reviewing the dark underbelly of the global aid and investment industry. And that'll be happening at 6.30 p.m. with meal from 6 p.m. at the Resistance Centre, level 5, 407 Swanson Street, opposite RMIT, and it's presented by Green Left. Green Left. On Saturday, the 29th of February, there'll be a protest from Manus to uh, Matra, let them out, let them stay. Refugees and um, asylum seekers brought from Manus for the medical treatment have been locked up in the Matra Hotel in Preston, in some cases for almost a year. Others are behind the fences at the Broadmeadows Detention Centre, and they'll be happening at 2pm at the Matra Hotel, 215 Bell Street in Preston. There'll be a public meeting, um, stories of, on Tuesday, the March the 3rd, um, public meeting, stories of courage and sacrifice from Christmas Island. After spending five years working on Christmas Island as a torture and trauma counsellor, Christine Cummins, um, found her, found herself in, um, the privileged position of the holder of stories. Anyway, that'll be happening at 7pm at the New International Bookshop, Tuesday, March the 3rd. And then on Thursday, March the 5th, there'll be a public meeting. Um, Yanis Rafakis, Debt, Disobedience and Democracy today at 7.30 at the Appen Theatre, 188 Collins Street in the city. Also happening on that Thursday, um, March the 5th, will be the International Women's Day Rally, which will be happening at 5.30pm at the State Library. Um, there'll be on Friday, March the 6th, there'll be a film screening, Pink Washing Exposed. Countries like Israel promote themselves as gay friendly to divert from the, uh, attention from the terrible human rights violations. In the, in this case, diverting attention from the brutal colonization of Palestine. And that'll be happening at 3030, 30, 33 Saxon Street in Brunswick. Um, and then on 
uh, there'll be a film screening, The Triangle Wars, the story of, of the battle waged between local government, big business and the community over the development of a tiny sliver of crown land on the foreshore of St Kilda, happening at 7pm at the Kino um, 45 Collins Street in the city. Um, on Friday, the March the 13th, there'll be the March Against Murdoch, um, Climate Truth Now, happening at 5pm at the Treasury Gardens. Also happening on Friday the 13th of March will be um, a protest organised by Uni Students for Climate Justice as part of a National Day of Action for University Students at 1pm at the State Library. And then on Saturday the 14th of March, there'll be a West Papuan fundraiser, 1pm at the Underground Car Park, 44 Ham- Hamsworth Street in Collingwood. All right. Um, yes, I think that's that's pretty much it. Um, I might just go. How about I might play a quick song um, by um, Winter Sun by Lucy Wise, and then we'll move on to our third and final interview.
Alright, you're listening to Green Left Radio. Um, that was The Winter Sun by Lucy Wise. Um, and now it is 8.10am and we're going in um, for our final interview. Um, so on the line we have Katie George, um, who is a resident who is campaigning against, um, against what the proposed North East Link will do to her suburb. Um, and I think she is part of a... I sort of had the group here, um, although she can probably... St. Banyol Tunnel Not Trench group. Yep, that's the yes. group, okay. Um, so, yeah, I'll pass it on to Megan. And, um, yeah, Katie, can you hear us? It's all good? Yes, that's great. Oh, good yeah, morning. Good, yeah, good morning. <laughs> so, good morning, Katie. Thank you for coming on the show. Um, so, your group, uh, Save Banyol Tunnel Not Trench, is opposed to a section of the proposed Northeast Link project, uh, specifically the trench through Banyol. Can you describe the trench and explain uh, why you're opposed to it? Yes, sure. So, um, I suppose the first thing that I'll do is just clarify that the Save Banyol Tunnel Not Trench is a campaign that's supported by multiple groups that are local to the area. Um, one of those groups is Friends of Banyul and there's another group that is supported by community and also um, local traders in the area and that's called the Smartaway. Um, so the, the trench it's, is, that is, is proposed by the North East Link reference design and they keep calling it a reference design. Um, and you may have seen it reported in the media and that's what the councils are, the local councils are actually opposing in principle because mm. it's really hard to understand what the um, impacts will be um, from an environmental assessment perspective just based on a concept. Um, but the, the trench in the reference design proposes uh, a divide um, that will split um, the muni- municipality of Banyul in half by between 60 metres at the north end of the trench and up to 100 metres at the southern end of the trench. So um, the the... Divide is a massive concern for the local community, um, particularly a lot of us are already having trouble trying to cross Greensboro Road as it is, which is the main route that uh, the trench will follow. Mm. And there haven't been um, any resolutions that have been proposed by North East Link prior to the environment effects statement um, process and the hearings that went through that actually resolved this problem. So we've got... Um, significant detrimental impacts from Watsonia all the way down to Yalambi, which is where I live. Um, I actually have lived in the municipality for my entire life um, and live and work in the local area. Um, We shop at uh, Watsonia Activity Centre at the the local shopping village and that's under threat. So that stands to lose about 60% of its custom from the eastern side of the suburbs um, and that means that some of the businesses will close and some of the jobs will go and that's local families. Um, And for residents, we're facing um, upwards of seven years of really invasive surface work construction because of the the methodology that's been proposed by, um, uh, you know, this this reference design in the trench. So we're... um, in favour of the IAC recommendations, sorry, that's the Independent Inquiry and Advisory Committee um, of experts that put recommendations to the Minister, including uh, the case for a longer tunnel that goes all the way from Grimshaw Street south um, instead of this disaster trench that we're facing uh, Mm. and proposing to bore the tunnel, uh, which will reduce the surface impacts by about 83%. 
Now, I guess that leads into my next question because um, you've previously said save our homes, our environment and our health. Um, I mean, I guess with the construction and with what's happening, can you elaborate on, on this and, and what you mean? Yeah, sure. So health is a big concern um, for us. What we don't know is um, what the plan is for the management of um, contaminated and acid sulfate soils that are pro- proposed to be coming from this construction um, of the, the entire project. So there's about 3.3 million cubic metres of soil that either is contaminated or needs to be treated. Um, and there's no plan at the moment on how that will happen. And to sort of illustrate, I suppose, the, the, the urgent and immediate nature of that concern, the um, bottom of my driveway has a beautiful reserve called Borlase Reserve on it. Um, that was a landfill in the 1950s. And in the 1950s, people could dump whatever they liked, wherever they liked, in whatever local tip they could have close to them, including building materials. And one of the, the most prolific building materials in the 1950s was asbestos. So the, the contractors who are responsible for um, what they call early work, which is to relocate services such as gas, power, electric, uh, and um, water, um, I think there's seven um, services in total. And they're, they're proposing to move these out of the way, which includes excavation works on the reserve at the bottom of my driveway. They haven't been able to guarantee that me and my family um, with young children won't be exposed to uh, dust from that excavation work. And I've said that if they can't guarantee our safety during construction, that's a really massive concern. Um, And we've requested Mm -hmm. community meetings to get explanations from them on what their plans are. Um, And they've deliberately downplayed the, the risk of exposure to dust from contaminated soils. So this is what we're dealing with um, at the moment. Um, not to mention, you know, the health impacts of living next to major roads. We know that there's no safe level of um, particulate matter from uh, emissions from living next to major roads, and we know that diesel fumes are really, really bad. Um, and having an open-cut trench with the fumes that just spew forth from all of the truck traffic that's proposed to be in it. Um, I think that the uh, there's a prediction that the worst air pollution impacts are north of uh, Yalambi Road in, in my suburb. Um, and there's large sections of the community that still have no idea that this is what they're facing. Yeah, so Sam, I understand you're going to be personally severely impacted by this. So, you know, it's the risk of exposure to asbestos and whatever particulate matter that's been dumped in that area. And then also, obviously, the, the fumes from the trench that's going to come up. Um, is there anything else that, you know, you could, that you can detail, um, you know, what might happen to you and your family with regards to um, this construction and this trench? Yeah, so um, at the moment, um, we our, our home does not fall inside what they call the project area boundary. So that means that we're excluded from compulsory acquisition, which, you know, there's two schools of thought on that. One is that it's nice to be able to have a choice to stay in our house. Um, but the reality is we don't actually have a choice to stay in our home because they're not going to be able to make it livable. Um, so... We need to go, and we know that we need to go before early work start in six weeks. Um, I've been in conversations with North East Link now 
since April last year when I first found out that um, what they had originally told me in 2017 about not being impacted was false. Um, and through those conversations, I've been asking for honesty about how we stand to be impacted. And we were pushed at the beginning to participate in the EES process because what they said was this reference design will change. The contractors they were hoping would do a better job um, and deliver a much more superior design. They actually described the reference design as the worst case scenario. Um, and they did not at any time mention that we were going to be impacted by early works. It was just that we noticed some um, spray paint and construction activity, sorry, investigative um, works activity at the bottom of our driveway, which prompted us to follow up with them and say, what's going on and why is this happening now? Because we didn't expect that anything would be happening for another 12 months. Um, so that was when we found out that we were going to be impacted by early works uh, as soon as April this year. Um they knew that back in April last year and they explained that they deliberately withheld that information because they didn't know exactly what the impacts were going to be from early works and we've paid the price of the cost of time for being able to plan to get out. So the conversation at the moment sits uh, around um, temporary relocation options for us so I'm a family of five, and as are many of my neighbours. They have mm. young children. Um, and we've been offered an arrangement of going into like an apartment-style, a two-bedroom apartment-style accommodation for up to 28 days, which doesn't suit our needs. Um, and for anything that's longer term, they are reliant on the current rental market vacancies and there's no confirmation yet on who will pay for what. Um, who will be on the lease. So potentially the latest proposal that I had was I would need to be on the lease as a tenant um, in addition to being financially responsible for paying my mortgage and relying on their good graces to make good on the payment uh, for the rental that we we might find. Um, we're responsible for finding something that's in similar condition and with similar amenity as our current home, but that's... Um, you know, subject to the approval of the authority, um, and in You're engaging with a matter them, of a couple of weeks, I've got I've got six more weeks to find somewhere to live for my family because oh my they gosh. are going to progress with these works and they won't stop. And so um, this means that your so you and your neighbours are facing the same sort of situation. Absolutely, there's a, there's uh, approximately twenty homes in my street alone. And we know that whatever happens to us now will set the precedent for how everybody else is impacted by this project. Now, at the EES hearings, North East Link said that they mailed out to 300,000 residences up and down the corridor that they expect to be impacted. And looking at the Bureau of Statistics, it works out to about 700,000 people who are impacted. And there's no plan. And there doesn't seem so, to be any kind of... Um you know, organised program, it seems to be that you have to tease this information out of them and and on your side you have to work to, to get this, you know, sorted? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm up to about a 1,000 hours of my own personal time over the last um, 10, or so, 12, 10 or so months trying to sort this out. Um, and there's still there's still no plan. The ministers come out and, and the CEO, Duncan Elliott, comes out and says uh, quite regularly that they're in one-on-one discussions with 
families like mine and that, you know, we're being looked after, but the reality is we're not. Mm. Um, we have been uh, advised that we will be eligible for what they call a voluntary purchase scheme. So that's similar to a compulsory acquisition arrangement. But the nuance of that is in our uh, case, we wouldn't get enough to be able to resettle in the same area. So we would be priced out of the property market and we would never be able to afford to buy back in and we're being forced into a position potentially of surrendering our status as homeowners um, mm. and having to go back to, to renting. So it's really serious um, and I can't um, understate just how awful this is. This is. Of course. And now you've previously stated um, that these early works must not be undertaken until the final design is known for the main project. Now you've touched on this before, but has the community not been informed about the final design? Was the, the one that you mentioned the actual final design and they didn't tell you? Or how, how do you feel your community has been listened to? I mean, I believe the North East Link Authority has deliberately withheld information from the community. Is that correct? Yes, that's exactly right um, and is accurately reflective of my experience, particularly in the situation of early work. So the the final design of the road continues to remain unknown. Um, the, there are two consortia bidding at the moment for what they call the primary package works um, and that will be to construct the final form of uh, what their design is for the road, uh, which will... North East Link says will not be the reference design. Now, the problem that we've got is um, the early works to relocate all the services. We can't figure out how anyone can know where those services need to go to before all of the final design of the road is actually known. Mm. Um, and the contract for the early works was awarded during the EES hearing before the public had actually been heard and before the independent inquiry and advisory committee had had an opportunity to uh, assess all of the information and provide recommendations to the minister. So the whole process was um, hijacked, I think, (laughs) is probably the right word. Mm. Um, The community, even now, um, there are people in the community that say, oh, I can't believe that this whole process was developed on the basis of um, artist impressions, and that's effectively a good description of the situation. So when people say artist impressions, there are a whole bunch of glossy um, artist impression marketing material that was put to the community in uh, in September 2018 that has... It's available online on the North East Link website, but you can see as soon as you open it up, there's some what they call green bridges that they put in as um, an alternate design when concerns about the east-west divide through Banyul were raised. Um, and these green bridges, are, um, they have images of um, people walking and cycling with traffic running below them through the trench, traffic either side of them and traffic um, front and back. Mm. And they're, they're presenting it as some kind of a place that people would actually want to be. Um, the, the marketing campaign, I think, um, has been really effective. The North East Link call it a consultation campaign, but the community weren't listened to. The uh, community liaison group for the northern section, which is where we are, um, put their case very strongly, reflecting that the community didn't want this massive trench. What they actually wanted was a longer tunnel. Um, And the first um, opposition that North East Link threw up about the, the longer tunnel proposal was that 
um, there was a gas line in the way and they're now looking to move that gas line as part of early work. So there's been um, various arguments that were put forward in opposition to the idea of a longer tunnel that have just been um, false. Uh, you know, there was an argument that it was going to cost $1.5 billion extra to tunnel, um, I think it's an extra three kilometres, um, and that it was going to take an extra 1.5 years. Now, the cost yeah. of the project hasn't been um, appropriately put. They haven't factored in compensation, the cost of relocation for families like mine, the cost to people's health. Mm. Um, this trench is going to be close to lots of schools, kindergartens, aged care homes and people who are vulnerable to uh, air quality um, degradation. And, you know, when you start to think about what the actual impacts are and how that hasn't been costed into their reference design compared to the proposal of the longer trench, yeah. we, we've fully costed the longer trench and we say that it's comparable. Um, regarding the time factor, it's not disruptive time. So you're not looking at an extra 1.5 years of um, more construction work at the surface that's really disruptive, that keeps people awake at night, um, that has, you know, 600 spoil trucks a day going up and down Greensboro Road on top of what's already there, mm. with the, the main road going down to, to one lane either way for extended periods of time. A board tunnel, you, you set up the machines, you launch, launch the machines and they just go. Um, and when where further north the spoil trucks can access the... the um, Western Ring Road, or sorry, the Metropolitan Ring Road, um, directly from from where the tunnel site's launched. So they're actually, it's a much better outcome for community. Yeah, Katie. Unfortunately, we've run out of time. Um, thank you so much um, for your uh, your input today. Is there any sort of last minute thing that you want to say that you haven't maybe said before, or just to recap the um, the campaign? Yes, please. So um, you can find quite a bit of activity on Friends of Banyul's Facebook page if people would like some more information. Um, there's also a website, uh, www.thesmarterway.net, um, that has specific information about the longer tunnel design. Um, I would be happy to connect with anybody who wants some further information. We're asking for people to write to um, the ministers, your local MPs, and um, your local council, there are four councils that are actually taking Supreme Court action to challenge uh, this reference design. So uh, throw them your support, um, get on the phone, go and sit in your local MP's office okay. um, and get behind the campaign. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Katie, for your time and we wish you good luck with your campaign. Thank you. Thanks very much for having us. Thank you. So that was Katie George of Save Banyul Tunnel, not Trench Group. Uh, now, we have come to the end of the show. Uh, now you have Beyond Zero Emissions, so stick around for that show. Thank you. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1800 For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Repeats of the show and interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into 3CR Community Radio, 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.
Dot AU. Start sometime.